You know, she was 17 years old and on a hot summer day went diving into the Chesapeake, Chesapeake Bay. Joni was an athlete, but on this particular day, she misjudged the depth of the water. She hit her head at the bottom and she shattered a part of her vertebrae, bringing her to the point of being a quadriplegic. This great athlete lost the ability to feel anything below her shoulders. Laying in the hospital, she became angry and upset and suicidal. But then she was reminded of the gospel of Christ and what he had come to do for her. And it was right there in the hospital where Joni Erickson Tata gave her heart completely to the Lord. And it's in that moment in that hospital bed that she decided to make much of him with her life. And for the last several decades, she has written more than 48 books, has hosted the nationally syndicated Joni and Friends radio show. She's become an advocate for the handicapped on Capitol Hill. She has produced multiple worship albums and starred in several TV shows and movies. And the question is, what has the power to change someone who is in the deepest and darkest of despair? and transform them so drastically. Well, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus has the power to soften the hardest of hearts and humble the proudest of people. You see, the resurrection of Jesus gives joy and peace to all who believe. The resurrection of Jesus gives hope to the world that death no longer has the last word on our lives. Joni wrote, I'm sorry, Johnny wrote in one of her books, in heaven, I will be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. She goes on to write, I with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? You see, it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can provide hope for those who are faced with such terrible circumstances. Because it's only the resurrection that promises a new and better life for all who believe upon Christ. You see, it's this historic event of Christ's resurrection that changes everything. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 16. So here we are as a faith family. We're in the last chapter of the book of Mark. We've been walking through this gospel together as a faith family, verse by verse, what seems like not long after Mark wrote it. It's like the ink dried and we just started in on it, right? <laughs> okay. Mark wrote the gospel around 63 or 70 AD, somewhere in there. But we've been walking through this book and we're finally in chapter 16. And we have been seeing how Jesus 
is on the move. That God has come to save his people. King Jesus has come to establish his kingdom. For three years, he has preached, performed miracles, and pointed to the kingdom of God that is both here and hereafter. That the kingdom of God is already and not yet. Well, Jesus commands all people everywhere to repent and believe the good news and then follow him. When we get to Mark 16, we finally reach the climax of the gospel, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. We've seen in previous weeks how Jesus has been denied, tried, and crucified. He was buried in Joseph's tomb, but on the third day, he rose again. And that is what we see happening in Mark chapter 16. Look with me at Mark 16, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Here it is, the empty tomb, something that we as followers of Jesus don't celebrate just one day a year at Easter. Indeed, this is something we celebrate every day of our lives. That the tomb is empty. It's resurrection morning. And this historical event changes everything. This morning, I want you to notice in the text how Mark describes the events of resurrection morning and what that means for us. I want you to see first, I want you to see the time and the tomb. The time and the tomb. First, the time. Verse one says, when the Sabbath was over. Now remember the, the Jewish day goes from sundown to sundown. Well, it's Saturday evening, the Sabbath is over, the streets of Jerusalem start bustling with people, vendors opening their shops, and Mary, Mary, and Salome go buy spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Don't you love the devotion of these women? Three times in eight verses, we see these women's names come up in the text as witnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You go back to chapter 15 and verse 40, and you see Mary, Mary, and Salome who are watching Jesus' death on the cross from a distance. You go to chapter 15, verse 47, and you see Mary and Mary who are watching to see where Jesus would be buried. And then here we are in chapter 16, verse 1, and we see Mary, Mary, and Salome who are headed towards the empty tomb. You see, Mark is giving their names as eyewitnesses to this actual historical event. Mark's original audience, they knew these women, and he's pointing to them as references who could verify the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And so if anyone had any questions regarding the details of what happened, Mark is saying, hey, go ask these three, these three women. 
These are three people who can validate and confirm what actually happened. Now remember, women had no significant value in society. They didn't have any uh, significant uh, place of prominence or prestige. They were viewed as property. They were not even allowed to testify in a court of law. So the fact that women are the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and not men, it provides validity to the reality of the resurrection. Because if this story was made up, there is no way the gospel writers would point to women as the primary eyewitnesses. But God loves to turn ungodly cultures upside down for his greater purposes. Well, the disciples, they're still hiding behind locked doors. But these women, they're headed towards Jesus' tomb out of love and devotion for Christ. They want to serve their Savior one more time. They come with spices, which would help smother the odor of a body that had begun to decay, which tells us that these women did not anticipate the resurrection either. They wouldn't have gone to get spices if they knew Jesus was going to come back to life. They wouldn't prepare his body if they knew he was going to rise up. So verse two, very early in the morning, sunrise, they go to the tomb of Jesus. And as they're going, there is a logistical problem. The stone that blocks the entrance to the tomb is so large and so heavy, they realize there is no way they are strong enough to move it. And y'all, this is a picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. These women, they have questions. They have uncertainties. They don't have all the details figured out. And yet they keep walking toward the empty tomb. You see, Faith requires following Jesus even when you don't have all the answers yet. You may have some big questions. You may be wrestling through some very big uncertainties. There are details about the Lord and his word in which you struggle and you're just uncertain of. You can't rest your, your soul on them. Keep following Jesus anyways. These women are not sure of what is ahead. They have questions about their access into the empty tomb, and yet they keep going. They keep going after Jesus. And as you're wrestling, you may be asking questions like, God, why did you allow this to happen? God, how am I going to make it? What's going to happen in the future? Well, these women could have easily said, you know what? Guys, we can't get in. The boulder's blocking the entrance this wasn't going to work. Let's just, let's just turn around and let's go back. If they had turned around, they would have missed the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. You see, faith means sometimes having big questions, but you keep following Jesus anyways. You wait until God provides the answers. God had already answered their question. They just didn't even know it yet. They had just had to keep walking by faith. Well, as you follow Jesus, it's okay to ask big questions. God is not scared of your questions. And yet as you walk towards the Lord, as you follow Jesus with your questions, I wanna encourage you, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Dig into the scriptures and patiently wait on the answers. God will answer us in due time, but we must keep marching towards the empty tomb. We keep believing and trusting in Christ in the midst of uncertainty. Because by the time the women get to the tomb, verse four, the large stone has already been rolled away.
When you have questions, keep following Jesus. You keep following the Lord and he will show himself faithful. The second thing we see here in the text is not just the time in the tomb, but we see the messenger and the message. When the women get to the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they're terrified. Matthew says that it was an angel of the Lord. Luke says that there were two men in dazzling clothes. Okay, so which is it? Is it one angel or is it two angels? Is this a contradiction in scripture? No, it's not. Two angels were present. Matthew and Mark just simply record the one who did the talking. It's interesting here, the two angels sitting on the right and left of where Jesus was laid what does that sound like? What well, sounds like the mercy seat. The mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25, God commands the Ark, this wooden box covered in gold, which will contain and carry Aaron's staff that budded the Ten Commandments and manna from the desert. Well, on top of the ark, on top of this golden box, were two cherubs, two angels, where their wings were spread out, and they would cover the mercy seat. God told Moses in Exodus 25, 22, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all I have commanded you regarding the Israelites. Well, when Christ was raised, there were two angels at the tomb. And it is there that God meets with his people at the empty tomb. These angels are pointing to Jesus, who is the true Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the God-man through which we now have a way for our sins to be forgiven through him. That when the, when the priest would draw near once a year and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for his sins and to atone for the sins of Israel, we see Jesus, who is the great high priest, who is the greater Ark of the Covenant. He is the mercy seat. And through him, all of our sins are washed. All of your sins are atoned for. They, they're paid for in full by the blood of Christ and here are two angels seated on either side of where Jesus was laid. And it is pointing to him as the fulfillment of the true mercy seat. If you do not know Christ, come to Jesus and he will show you mercy. If you don't know Jesus today, turn from your sin and trust in him. He will provide forgiveness. And mercy for you in your time of need. For Christ was the punishment that paid for your sin in full at the cross. And now at the empty tomb, he is vindicated as the true victor over death. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus defeated death. It has been swallowed up in victory, which means you do not have to fear your last breath. 
You do not need to be terrified of what is to come on the other side because Jesus has already defeated it. Sin was lost to Christ. Death has lost to Christ. The grave has lost to Christ. Satan has been permanently defeated by Jesus through his death and resurrection. And so you rest in Christ, you trust in Christ, and you too have victory even over death. This is where we as believers put our faith. We're trusting not in ourselves, not in our good works, not in our merit, not in our worldly philosophies. We're trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished for us. So what we see here happening in the empty tomb is we have the messenger. But we also see this messenger, he has the message. This message we see has two parts. I'll put it in your notes. The first is this. The first message that he gives is the command. The women, they're, they're afraid, they're alarmed. Luke says they're terrified and bowed down to the ground. And the angel tells them, don't be alarmed, which is usually the first thing an angel says in scripture, right? You remember like when uh, an angel appeared to Daniel and says, do not be afraid. Or when Gabriel, the archangel, appeared to Mary and says, you're gonna have a baby. And his first words are, don't be afraid. Or when the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds out in the field by night and he says, fear not. It's because when humans come in contact with angels, we typically wet our pants. You see it all throughout scripture. It's not little babies with wings, okay? But there's something else happening here. This messenger here has a message she's giving. He tells them, verse six, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. You don't need to be scared. Now, the very presence of an angel is terrifying enough, but to see the stone rolled away, Jesus not there, his burial clothes that Joseph had bought for him, they're folded nicely. This is a surreal moment. And the angel testifies, verse six, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. The angel knows why they're there. He knows who they're looking for. And he tells them he isn't here. He's risen. Jesus is alive. And he commands them, come and see. Come and see. Reminds me of John chapter one, in which Nathaniel asks the question, what good can come from Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. You see, this is the call for you and I, is that when we open the scriptures, we have a God who says, come and see. Let me show you. See what I have revealed in my word. I want you to believe upon what I am revealing to you. This is an invitation. God is inviting you to come and see that the tomb is empty. And what the women see with their eyes, we see by faith as revealed in scripture. Come and see. The second thing that we see in the text, the message is the commissioning. The commissioning, we see it there, verse seven, go and tell. After the angel commands them to come and see, he commissions them, verse seven, go and tell. The call to be a disciple of Jesus is to come and see that the gospel is true. Bank your soul upon Christ. Come and see, believe upon him. And then go and tell people what you've seen. In John chapter four, Jesus encounters a sexually immoral woman at a water well. 
He reveals to her her sin, unpacks her like a trained TSA agent, everything in her past. And she realizes, oh my goodness, I think this is the Messiah. She makes a beeline to Sychar. She runs to the town square, a community that knows of her sins. And she stands up and says, I met a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come and see. And here is a woman, when she encounters Christ, her first knee-jerk reaction is to go and tell. You see, when you meet Jesus, you want to talk about Christ. You want others to know what you've experienced. There's this, this transformation in your heart in which it's like, can this be true? Oh my goodness, this changes everything. And so her first reaction was to go and tell. Here, the messenger is giving the message, come and see, he ain't here, he's risen. Now, go and tell. Go communicate. Let the world know who he is and what he has done. We, beloved, have been commissioned by the king to go and tell the world what he has done. That he has died and risen. And this is the greatest news that the world will ever hear. And so we are people who share this news. We are preachers of the gospel, all of us. We go make much of Christ and we communicate what we have come and seen. And indeed, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who died and rose again. He is the one who changes everything about us. And yet notice who the angel tells them to go to. Verse seven, the disciples and Peter, the disciples. Oh yeah, the 11 who are currently cowering in fear behind a bolted door, the best friends of Jesus who abandoned him in his darkest and most painful moments, and Peter, the one who denied him three times. Don't you just love the compassion of God? Psalm 103, verse eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. As we see at the end of John's gospel, Peter heads up to Galilee and he sees Jesus. And Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? One for each time Peter denied him. And Peter responds, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. And Jesus responds, go and feed my sheep. Go and feed my sheep. Go and feed my sheep. Jesus takes this man who he has invested his life into for three years and he restores him. Instead of condemning him, yelling at him, throwing a fist at his face for denying him on that night, Jesus restores him and cooks him breakfast. He is a God of compassion. And it's as if the messenger here in the tomb is saying, go tell the disciples and Peter. Let Peter know God's not done with you yet. Jesus still loves you. Jesus still has work for you to do. His life is not over. There is still work to be done. And it is through his witness of this empty tomb that the entire world is going to hear the good news of the gospel. Have you ever felt like you've let God down? I know that I have. And yet God is 
compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And the empty tomb is God's way of saying, I still love you. I'm not done with you yet. I've still got work for you to do. I know you've failed. I know you've sinned. I know you've tripped up and stumbled. I know that you're broken, but I'm not done with you yet. I love you. And we've got a gospel that we need to get to the ends of the earth. This messenger is laying out the message for these disciples and Peter to know that they can be restored back to him. And the angel tells them, tell them that Jesus is headed back to Galilee and you will see him there, look at the text, just as he told you. Isn't that amazing here? The disciples are being reminded of what Jesus said would happen. You can go all the way back to Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and Mark chapter 9, verse 31, and Mark chapter 10, I don't remember the verse, in which three times Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to to die, I'm going to rise again. And the angel is saying, hey, you remember what he said? Just as he told you? You see, you can trust the word of Christ. Jesus will never lie to you. Just as Jesus told the disciples, all these things are going to happen to me. And guess what? They did. None of them expected it. None of them believed it. All of them thought the, the revolution was over. And oh, it was just getting warmed up. You can trust the word of Christ in the midst of a world that is lying to you. The news, your social media, people in your life, lie after lie after lie. Jesus says, you can trust what I tell you. I will always tell you the truth because I, Jesus, am the truth and the life. And I am the one through which you get access to the Father. And indeed, Jesus is the one you can trust. So we see the time in the tomb. We see the messenger in the message. Thirdly, we see the running and the rejoicing. The women are so overcome by the empty tomb and the message of the angel, they, verse eight, ran from the tomb. Like newlyweds skipping out of the chapel. Like kids who left school for summer break. Like an innocent man freed from prison. Probably with tears streaming down their cheeks, these women are bursting with hysterical laughter. They were in utter shock. These women are overcome with such joy and excitement and fear and astonishment. It was almost like their feet weren't even touching the ground as they were running, overcome by the reality and the significance of what has just happened. It's like, oh my goodness, could this possibly be true? Has Jesus really risen from the dead? Can you believe this? And beloved, this is what you and I experience and we believe the gospel. Maybe you've forgotten what it was like when you first came to Christ. One of the dangers you and I face is that the longer we follow Jesus, we become numb to what he's done for us. This is why David prays in the Psalms, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Let us not forget what it felt like when you first got saved. Don't forget what it was like to realize, oh my goodness, all of my sins are forgiven. Don't forget the joy of wanting to skip and to shout and to sing as if you were levitating because of the reality and the truth of what's happened in your life, of what Christ has done for you in the gospel. 
This is what we have experienced. And this changes everything. This empty tomb is a declaration to the world is that the resurrection, according to Tim Keller, was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. The resurrection changes everything, even you. When was the last time you skipped and laughed hysterically over the reality that your sins are forgiven? When was the last time at the truth of the gospel it compelled you to want to dance and sing? You're thinking, wait a second, this is a Baptist church. (laughs) The gospel compels you to run and rejoice. These women are sprinting out of the tomb over the reality of what has happened in their heart. The truth of a risen Christ changes you forever. And that means we've got something to tell the nations. This is your impact point. Is let's go and tell the nations and our neighbors, Jesus Christ is risen from the grave and so are we. We are of people who can skip like we were prisoners under a death sentence who've been set free. Except our death sentence wasn't just a matter of moments. It was eternal death that you have been rescued and ransomed permanently, not by your doing, but by his. And so it compels you to want to sing and to shout and to praise and to worship and to declare and obey what he commands. Not because you have to, but because you want to, because you realize the reality of what Christ has done through the empty tomb. Which means this, there's coming a day in which wheelchairs and chemo ports and funeral homes will no longer exist. They're gonna be gone. All because Jesus is alive. And you too can get in on this by trusting in Christ. Maybe you've allowed the anxiety of this world, the fear of what's happening around us right now, the uncertainty of the future to paralyze you. Let the truth of the empty tomb compel you to sing and dance and skip because one day you and I, we're gonna gather with the redeemed and we're gonna celebrate because we went running out of a grave, rejoicing and celebrating just like Jesus. 